let's uh, look at your notes here. We're looking again, and you can turn your Bibles now to Luke, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. This will be our last message on one minute after you die. I hope you, again, have gotten as much out of this and uh, as I have, and I hope it's burdened you. My whole goal is really, uh, it started out as, you know, the media saying a lot about where people go to heaven when they die, celebrities and, and those kind of things. But really, what do we think? And do we live like we really believe? And that's really what this passage is about. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Let's have a quick word of prayer. Father, we come... And uh, this is a very sober and serious topic. It's one that you talked on. You talked on hell more than you did on heaven. And so, Lord, we want our hearts prepared. And we, we do have a great God that we can sing to in you. But we also have marching orders. We have a commission and we have a purpose from you. And so, Lord, help us to, to be moved in our spirit and changed in our lives regarding the eternal destinies of people we see day in, day out. And Lord, let us not be deceived by hopeful, wishful thinking, but Lord, let us see with clarity the revealed truth that you have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, observations about Luke 16. I hope you almost have these memorized. What's the significance of Luke chapter 16? It's this. It's the one place in Scripture that we have a testimony of someone who has been sent to hell and what hell is like. It's the one place in Scripture. You know, it's interesting. A couple weeks ago, I referenced a book about 20 minutes uh, in hell or 20 minutes after death and, and someone's personal experience you know, of hell, and we talked about that. Well, then this week, I, I ran across someone talking to me about a book of someone who had had an experience of going to heaven and what heaven was like. Uh, and this gentleman uh, goes around to churches and, and events, and, and, and here's my thing on both these people. You know, you can't argue with experience. You know, and there's no denying that they had experience and they obviously believe in it enough to publish it and uh, uh, promote it, and, and, and that's great. But we have something better than experience. We have the revealed Word of God. And so this is the one place where you can know absolutely what is life after death. Uh, and that's the second observation that we've been in this passage, is there's two periods in this passage. Life before death, life after death, and the pivot of those two periods of life is death. And whatever happens before death determines what's going to happen after death. That's a sobering reality, especially when you realize that we have no guarantee of tomorrow. That pivot may occur for you or me today. So all those things you are going to get around to for the Lord, those people we're going to witness to someday, that we're going to write a letter to, that we're going to reach out to, we may have no more than today. And so that's what we're looking at, two periods of life, but also two destinies after death. There is heaven and hell in this passage. The third characteristic we've said of this passage is it has three provocative questions that people ask about hell, and those are, what happens one minute after people die and go to hell? And this passage answers that with, with several uh, ideas, but you can summarize it this way. Uh, a lot of people are going to be surprised 
one minute after they die. And they're going to be suffering and there's separation and it's eternal and there's no relief. The second question was, who will be surprised to be in hell? And I hope you came away with that. There's going to be a lot of people surprised because they're going to think that they were good enough to get to heaven. But the reality is, what kind of people are in hell? Listen, the same kind of people that are in heaven. What kind of people are in hell? The same kind of people that are in heaven. In fact, there will be some people in hell who are better than people who are in heaven. And there will be some people in heaven who are worse from a human perspective than people that are in hell. Why? Because that brings us to the third question. What sends people to hell? Or how can I go to heaven and not be surprised? So there you have in your notes. Why are people sent to hell? And this passage tells us very clearly people are sent to hell because they choose to reject. They choose to reject what the Scriptures say about three vital topics. They choose to reject what the Scriptures say about sin, about the Savior, and about salvation. And so we're asking the question, how not to be surprised one minute after you die? A couple decided to go to Cyprus for a holiday weekend. But because they both worked, it was hard to coordinate their dates. So they decided so they decided the husband would go a day early and his wife would join him the following day. On arriving, the husband thought he would email his wife from his laptop, but he accidentally mistyped the address, the email address, and sent it off without realizing it. A widow had just returned from her husband's funeral. He was a minister of many years who had been called home to glory following a heart attack. The widow checked her email expecting messages from relatives and friends, but instead found this to my loving wife from your departed husband. Subject, I've arrived. I've just arrived and checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. <laughs> and Jerry, I had to sh- I had to share that. And I do have here in my notes. Hell is no laughing matter. But I read this, and I don't want to make I don't want to take light of this. It is a serious thing. But. That tells, that is a, in a humorous way, tells a great reality that we're trying to drive home. A lot of good people will be surprised to be in hell. And it, won't, and it will be hot. It will be very hot for all of eternity. And they will get there sooner. Uh, the part I like, everything's prepared for your arrival tomorrow. We're going to get there sooner than what we think. So how can you and I not be surprised? We said last week, and we're going to go over this first point quickly. Check your response to Scripture. It all begins with Scripture. Look again at verse 29 and verse 31. But Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them what? Hear them. And so you can write in your margin, Scripture, check my response to Scripture. And he says, and he protests. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, 
I say it again, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, right in your margin, the scriptures, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. It is very clear that Jesus ends this parable with one massive point, and it is this. Check your response to scripture. And notice the question, am I hearing what God has said and is still saying? And don't miss that point. It doesn't say, have I heard? Was there a point way back in my life where I heard God speak to my heart and since then I've been deaf to his scriptures? No, it says, am I hearing what God has said? And by the way, God is still speaking through the scriptures. So again, don't place this in the past tense. Place it in the present tense. Am I hearing what God has said and he's still saying? Now, the first thing that this guy does, we said last week, was he makes a request, do more signs. Do more signs. He's saying, look, I don't want my brothers to go where, I, where I'm at, and since I can't leave where I'm at and I can't get any relief, I don't want my loved one. And I think that's an important thing of this. It's important, I know, as a preacher doing funerals. Listen, no matter how irreligious, atheistic, and not agnostic or rebellious someone is, everybody in hell is an evangelist that does not want their loved ones to go where they are at. And that gives confidence when you're speaking. Look, I can say with confidence that your loved one wants you to hear this message. Now, he said, though, he didn't get, get it right on the message. He said, do more signs. And we said that the request for a sign was really an act of rejection, rejection of the Scriptures. Scripture wasn't enough, and that's the, that's the complaint. The, the request sounds okay, but in reality, it's a complaint, and the complaint is what? Your word is not sufficient. Your word is not sufficient. Scripture is not enough. Now listen, we want to we want to deal I said last week, we want to deal with people who who want more evidence regarding the gospel. We want to deal with them with love and compassion and sensitivity. We want to do acts of compassion and words of reason to help people. But all I'm trying to say to you is after the acts of compassion have been done, after the words of reason have been given, ultimately the heart must respond to the scriptures. Are you with me? There came a point in each of your lives, if you're born again to this morning, there came a point in your life where the Spirit of God moved on your heart and you re responded in belief to the Scriptures. And the irony we said last week was, did God give them more signs? Yeah, what were the signs? Lazarus rising from the dead, and yet who else rose from the dead? Jesus Christ Himself. So if you want more signs, there's your signs. You know, the, the argument is this, God hasn't done enough to warn people. He should write it in the sky. But he does. You know what his greatest warning was? Your sin is so great and my holiness is so great, I myself must come down there and die for you. Look to the cross. That's the warning of how serious God takes sin. But you say, well, no, he's not loving enough. He hasn't wooed us enough. He hasn't tried to entreat us enough. But then again, look at the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you want to see how much God loves you, look to the cross. And so we see that the sign was there. Number three, how did people in general respond to these signs? Well, we said they refused to believe. They refused to believe. 
And so, how do I know that I'm really hearing? We said, fourthly, those who have truly heard have been persuaded. They have been persuaded. It's not just hearing the message. It's being persuaded. And we did a whole study of that. And we saw that persuasion means I move and I act and I trust on what I have heard. It doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. It's not just a mental it's not just a mental thing, it's a heart persuasion. So here's what we want to ask today. How do we know that we've really been persuaded? How can I see? What evidence is there that I've been persuaded? Well, it's the second response, and it's summed up with one word in verse 30. What's that word in verse 30? How do I know? What do I do when I've been fully persuaded of, by the Scriptures regarding my sin and salvation? What do we do? We repent. Do you see that single word? So here's the question. How not to be surprised and end up in hell? Check your response to your sin. Am I repenting now instead of later? Am I repenting now instead of later? Again, I put that in the present tense. Not did I repent in the past, but Yes, did I repent in the past, and am I still repenting? What is my response to sin? And do I repent now instead of the attitude of, I can always dump that sin when? Later. Later. When the fun's run out. You know, the fun of it has run out. When the consequences bear down on me. When I really feel guilty or when I'm caught. That's not the response of someone who is truly born again. Am I repenting now? Now let's look at this. The rich man in hell knew what he should have done. He knew what he could no longer do. And he knew what his brothers hadn't done but still could do. What is it? Repent. That's what he says. He says, look, I know what I should have done. And I know what they can still do. If you would just do these things, they will repent. And notice that Abraham doesn't say, oh, no, repentance, that's not a part of the gospel. He doesn't say, hey, they don't need to repent. They just need to believe. No, he says, you're right. They need to repent. Where you're wrong is what? That they need more signs to repent versus, check your response, am I hearing the scriptures. So the proof that you've been persuaded and that I've been persuaded is that we repent of our sins at the preaching of the gospel. So what is repentance? Well, let's look at it. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1.9. What is repentance? Here's this one simple word. Jesus assumes we know what it means. We'll have to look around. I think 1 Thessalonians 1.9 is a great description of it. It doesn't define it because the word is not there. The word repentance is not in this passage, but everything that repentance is, is in this passage. Notice what it says. For they themselves, regarding... for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, the you being the Thessalonians. Here's how you responded to the message. Other people know about it. Other people are declaring how you responded to the gospel. And here, here it is. How you, what's it say? Turned. How you turned. Circle that word turned. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what repentance does. It turns from false gods, false idols, 
false confidence, and it turns to that, to something, the true and living God, to do something, to serve and to wait for the coming of Jesus Christ who will deliver us. There's the Christian life, folks. It is a turning from, it's not a holding on to this and a holding on to God and then not doing anything for God until he comes back, just holding on to both things. No, it's I've gripped onto this for my salvation. It ain't working. I'm turning from that and I'm gripping onto God, but I'm gripping onto God in order to serve him and wait for my salvation, which will come when he comes. So what is repentance? Here's an easy definition. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Well, how does it relate to faith? Here's another definition. Look at Acts 20.21. Repentance is the flip side of faith. Repentance is the flip side of faith. Look at Acts 20.21 in your Bibles. It says in Acts 20.21 that this was Paul's message. Here's his gospel. Acts 20. 21, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, what is he testifying of? What is he preaching in verse 21? What is it? Repentance toward God and what? Faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the flip side of faith. What's the flip side of faith? Repentance. What's the flip side of repentance? It is faith. Because both are a turning from one thing in order to trust and live for another. And so we have repentance towards God. God, I've left you out of my life. God, I've seen you as an afterthought. God, I've used you as a genie. God, I've taken your name in vain. I'm I'm changing my mind about that, and I'm now going to put my faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, for my salvation. I'm turning from my sins to my Savior. Now, how do we turn, or what do we turn from, and what do we turn to? Well, we turn from loving our sins or our money, in this case, in this parable, or other people more than we love God. We turn from loving other people, other things, to loving God more. We turn from trusting in ourselves and our good works. Hey, I think I'm good enough to go to heaven. We change our mind on that and say, whoa, I'm not good enough. The standard's God, and I'm going to now turn to trusting in what Christ has done for me. It's a turn from denying we are sinners. Listen, you can't get saved while denying that you're a sinner or saying you're good enough to get there. I change my mind on that, and I say, look, I'm not good enough to get there, and I turn to saying you're the only one good enough to get me into heaven. And I can't add anything to your goodness. We turn from living to please ourselves to turning to live to please who? God. We turn from paying lip service to our Creator and paying lip service to God, and we start giving Him the rightful place in our heart. And what place is that? First place, everything. That's what repentance is. Now, how important is repentance to our salvation? Well, let me tell you. This word repent, the reason it's not defined by Luke in this passage is because in his two, in his gospel, Luke, and in the book of Acts, which he also wrote, in those two books, he uses this word 25 times. This is a key word, just like persuade was a key word. And so if you want to understand what repentance is, in this 
parable, you've got to understand what it is in the rest of Luke and in Acts. Let me just read you some verses, and I want you to think, how important is repentance to my salvation? John the Baptist preached repentance in Luke 3, 8. Listen to this. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Jesus then preaches repentance in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 5.32, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know a lot of these verses. He says in Luke 13, 3, I tell you, no, this is Jesus, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In fact, he says that twice in the identical same wording. In Luke 15, 7, he says this, I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. God has a joy when sinners come to him. Luke, uh, uh, in fact, he repeats that twice because it's so important. In Luke 24, the last thing he says to us in the Great Commission is this, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. See, some people today believe that repentance is only for the Jews. It's only for the Old Testament. But folks, that's a part of how not to be surprised. It should be preached to all people. You've got to turn from your sins and accept the Savior. Peter preached repentance in the book of Acts, written by Luke. Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Again he preached in Acts 3, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance brings cleansing. Acts 5.31, he preaches it again, and he says, God has exalted Christ to his right hand to be prince and savior and to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You don't get forgiveness without repentance, and it's a gift from God. You say, well, I can't, I can't do it. It's okay. He'll give you repentance if you really want it. It's a gift. In Acts 8.22, he preaches it again. He says, repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray if God perhaps forgive the thoughts of your heart. Acts 11.18, he says this or their response to Peter's preaching, the, Jew, the, the believing Jews in Jerusalem. Listen, when they heard these things, they became silent. They glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, that's a powerful verse. What's it saying? Again, God grants repentance to us. This is a gift from Him. But it's a repentance that leads to Life And what is that life? Eternal life. You can't get to salvation without repentance. Paul preached it in Acts. Listen to this one. Acts 17.30. Luke says, here's what Paul preached. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Listen, but now commends all men everywhere to repent. What is the great command of God out throughout all the world for all ages until he comes? It's repentance. And then the passage in Acts 20 that we've already read. He preached repentance towards God and faith toward Lord Jesus Christ. 
Finally, I want to end with Acts 26.20. Listen to this. He sums up at the end of his life, he's in prison, and he doesn't know if he's going to be executed or not. And he says, here's how, here's what my ministry, here's what my message has been all about. I declared first to those in Damascus where he got saved, and then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, and here's what I preached, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. You know what he just did? He just defined repentance. I have preached everywhere that they should repent, and here's what it is. Turn to God, a change of mind, and do works befitting repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. So then, the question is for us today, what's been our response to sin? Are we turning from it to serve the Savior, to place our faith? That's how not to be surprised and end up in hell. But you say, how do I know I've truly heard and truly repented? That last verse I read you tells us, do works fitting of repentance. So here's number three. Check your response to the Savior. How do I know I've truly been persuaded by the Scriptures? How do I know I'm truly repenting of my sins? Check your response to the Savior and ask ask yourself this. Am I believing in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for my sins and the Lord of my salvation? Am I believing in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for my sins and the Lord of my salvation? Now, I hope you're being good students of the Word and you're looking at this parable and you're saying, I see here, I see repent, I see persuaded, but I don't see anything in this passage about believing in Jesus Christ. Would you agree? Yes, except for only one thing. Who's teaching the parable? Jesus Christ. And what have they, how has he been treated, or how did his hearers respond to him right before he told the parable? Jump back to verse 14. Look at verse 14. You see, whether we realize it or whether he spells it out clearly or not, this whole parable is about their response to the Savior. And the reason he warned them is because they had the wrong response to him. Look at verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, see, that's what they needed to repent from. They loved money more than they loved God. They loved themselves more than the hurting people around them. And because... They had failed to hear the Scriptures because they had failed to repent of their sins. Guess what their response to the Savior was? Notice, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things, and they did what? They scoffed, they derided, they ridiculed, they reject the Savior. Because here's the point. When you reject the Scriptures and you refuse to repent of your sins, you are rejecting the Savior. And if you are responding to the Scriptures and you've been persuaded by them and you have been persuaded that I'm a sinner that needs to repent and you're repenting, there's only one thing you can turn to and you turn to who? The Savior. And you you repent of rejecting Him and you believe and receive His salvation. 
I think that's, that's amazing. You know, there's only one other time in the whole New Testament that this word for ridicule that's used in verse 14 is used anywhere else in Scripture. And it's used by Luke in Luke 23. I want you to turn there. Luke 23, 34 through 35. Luke 23, 34 through 35. And I want you to see something. I mean, this, I, I'm telling you, blew me away. You say, is it really all about my response to the Savior? Yeah, the other time, the only other time this word is used is at the end of the gospel. Jesus is on the cross, Luke 23, 34 through 35. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on, but even the ruler, but even the rulers with them sneered. Same word, ridiculed, mocked, scoffed, and here's what they said. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. You know what they're saying? You're not the Christ. Otherwise, you wouldn't be dying. You'd be saving yourself. They didn't get it. He's not there to save himself. He's there to save usins who quit rejecting and realize, I deserve to be where he is. I deserve what he's getting. He's doing that for me. And so I receive him. I repent of what put him there. And I want to receive what he has. Remember this, those who benefit from the saving message of the cross repent of their rejection of the Savior. They're persuaded to turn and put their trust in him for salvation. Let me read you some other passages. This is a Bible study this morning. I just want to show you how much it's about Jesus. Jesus has this saying, depart from me. When he says depart from me, he's saying, I am sending you to hell. But listen to why he does it. And then I will declare to them, Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Listen to Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Luke 13, 27. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. I don't know you. Where you are from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. What is it that sends us to hell? Jesus doesn't know us by name. Do we know the rich man's name in this parable? No. Do we know Lazarus' name? Yes. What sends you to hell? Rejecting the Savior who wants to call you by his name, call you to repentance by the scriptures, call you to himself. And we reject that. And he says on that day, depart from me. I never knew you. And he doesn't mean way back when when you prayed that prayer. He means I never knew you. We didn't have fellowship. You didn't connect with me through the scriptures. You didn't connect with me through the body. I just did not know you. You are not of me. You are not of me. You know what's interesting? This word, depart from me, this phrase, is used one other time in Luke 
And here's the right response, and it's on the lips of Peter. And listen to this. Peter sees this miraculous catch of fish. You know, they had fished all night, and and Jesus says, throw your net on the other side, and he gets this miraculous catch of fish. And what that miracle does is what every miracle ought to do. It points to who Jesus was. Suddenly, he gets a... He he suddenly sees Jesus for who he really is. And you know what Peter says? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So I guess there's really only two choices, aren't there? Either Jesus is going to say to us, Depart from me, I never knew you. Because you thought you were sufficient in your own goodness, in your own righteousness. Or we come to a point before we die where we say, Lord, depart from me. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I am a sinful man and you are Lord. And my only hope is salvation from you. I, I thought that was really cool. Who's saying depart from me in your life? Well, I could go on, but what, what must we believe about him? Let me give you three things we've got to believe to receive salvation from the Lord. First of all, we've got to believe who he is. We've got to believe who he is. And who he is, folks, he's God in the flesh. He is fully God. He is fully man. We cannot make him any less than that and be saved. We've got to believe who he is. Number two, we've got to believe what he said. And what he said is recorded in Scripture, and I just gave you one out of many. No man, no woman comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or you have to come in my name. That's the idea. What he said was, I'm the way. I'm the life. Third, we have to believe what he did and what he still does for us. We have to believe what he did. And what did he do? He lived a perfect life that I couldn't live and neither could you. He died a perfect death, a death that we couldn't provide, a perfect sacrifice for his sins. He rose from the dead, the only person in all of history who has made that claim and has the evidence to back it up. He rose and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And you know what he sits there to do? To give out eternal life as a free gift. And he's giving it today. And he's going to give it this week at VBS. That's what we're saying, God, give the gift. Give it. Give it freely. And what we're trying to do this week is direct children to the Savior that loved them and did this for them. And we're going to teach what he said. And we're going to teach who he is. And we're going to say you too can be saved. That's what it's all about. Can I hear? Are you alive today? Are you excited about this? Check your response to the Savior. Now, how do we believe in Him? This is interesting. You know how we believe in Him? He grants us. He gives us the ability to believe in Him. Why do I say this? Turn to Luke 24. I'm just taking this all from Luke. Turn to Luke 24. And I've already, actually, I've already given the, I mean, I've given the, as you turn there, I've given you the answer. How does this happen? How do we believe? It's, if it, is it something that we work up? Is it something we manipulate people? Are we going to try to get these kids in an emotional frenzy this week so that all they can do is be, are we going to scare them out of hell and into heaven? No, that's not how people get saved. I mean, fear is a part of it. I mean, my first response to salvation was I didn't want to be left behind in the rapture after seeing a rapture movie, and that's justifiable reason to come to Jesus. I mean, the suffering, if we believe what we've taught, in this, what Jesus teaches in this passage about hell, it's justifiable to warn people and get them scared. Fear. 
But if it's just fear that is man-motivated and manipulated, it's not salvation. Because here's the thing. God has to do what? Give repent. It's a gift from him. But look at Luke 24, 30 through 32. How, how, how do we get an understanding of the scriptures? The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and notice the word, gave it to them. In other words, he symbolized his death, burial, and resurrection in the Lord's Supper. Then their eyes were opened. They didn't open them. God opened them, and they, and I love this, and they what? And they knew him. How do you know him? He grants you the grace to come to him. And, and, and then notice what he says. And he vanished from their sight. Why? Because it's not about seeing the physical Jesus. It's about taking him at his word. It's about repenting of our sins. That's good stuff. And notice verse 32. And they said to one another, this ties our whole lesson together. They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us? While he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. Check your response to scripture. Has God opened your heart? Check your response to sin. Is there a burning in your heart, a conviction in your heart? Check your response to the Savior. Are you walking with him and talking with him? And guess what happened? They were headed away from Jerusalem. They saw Jesus for who he was. Their hearts were open and they repented, turned, and changed the directions of their life and went right back to Jerusalem. You say, do I have to go to Jerusalem to be saved? I'm not saying, you're not getting it. No, but the direction you're going, away from God in your life, you turn it around because God gives you the grace to do it. You say, how do I know? I really believe. Number four, check your response to God's salvation. Check your response to God's salvation. And here's the final question. Am I bearing the fruit of repentance and saving faith? Am I bearing the fruit of repentance and saving faith? Let me make it real simple. Do I live as one who has repented and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why am I saying that? Because that's what this whole passage is about. Lazarus, though he had no reason to trust God, love God, believe in God, he had gotten the the raw end of the deal in life. We know he was trusting the Savior. The rich man who had it all, who thought he was going to heaven, he bore none of the fruits of repentance. How do we know that? Because daily there was a man to love at his gate, and he did not love him. Who's laying at your gate? Who's laying at the gate? of your work? Who's laying at the gate of our neighbors? Who's laying at the gate of this church? And are we walking by them with no compassion, with no care, with a closed heart? Or are we showing the fruit of repentance and saying, oh, you poor spiritual person, I have the riches of the gospel. Let me share them with you. Come into my home. Come into my life. And let me show you how you can be cleansed, how you can be healed, how you can be saved. I want to give you, or let me say it this way, and then I want to show a a video and a testimony. Is my life such that others will be surprised to see me in heaven? You see, maybe the question isn't, will I be surprised to be in hell? 
But maybe the question is, will others be surprised to see me in heaven? I want to show you a testimony of John MacArthur here. And it just wraps up this whole... It's a testimony by John MacArthur. I want you to see this and and bear with me here as I uh, do this. I've got to tell you a little story. Um, Every once in a while in my life, really incredible things happen. And I'm going to tell you this one because... It compressed my life. Fifty years ago, I was a football player. I was a football player for a really good coach. A very gifted coach who, after coaching me, went on to USC and was an assistant in the great years with John McKay. He was an offensive coordinator the great years when they won a number of national championships. Another heyday in the era of USC football. He became legendary. He spent the latter part of his coaching life at one of the great high school programs, Southern California, Muir High. Put, I don't know, 20 men in the NFL, a lot of tailbacks into great university football programs. Really, really gifted coach. We were so far advanced in the years that I played for him. Uh, against the universities that we played, we were playing sophisticated, almost West Coast offense pass formations. In fact, my last year, we, um, we were 292 yards a game in pass offense, and we're talking 50 years ago when people were doing three yards in a cloud of dust. He was a brilliant sideline analyst, knew what to do in the game. He became a legend in the coaching world, became the uh, chairman of the National Coaches Foundation, well known to all coaches. Well, 50 years ago, I I played for him and he wasn't a Christian. I remember sitting on an airplane flying to a game up at the University of San Francisco and uh, talking to him about the Lord, as I often tried to do. I was a a believer and and I wanted him to know the Lord because I really cared for him and I admired him. and, And he just had no interest. He said, I want to live the way I want to live. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. I want my life the way I want my life. And all these 50 years have gone by since I ended my career with him. I remember our last conversation was, tell him I'm not going to sign. If I'm drafted, I'm going to seminary. I want to be in the ministry. He didn't understand that, but that was the way the Lord had clearly led in my heart. So... Through the years, from time to time, he would visit the church and he followed my kind of life and my ministry and he would see me once in a while on television, hear me on the radio. And uh, Every once in a while, he'd invite me to some quarterback association golf tournament or something as his guest and just reconnect. Four weeks ago, at the age of 80, they took him to the hospital and he underwent heart surgery and uh, he had a... uh, abscess in his tooth, which in condition like that goes right to the mitral valve of the heart and can kill you fast. So he's lying in the hospital on the edge of death. I get a call from his brother that he wants to see me. He wants to see me because he's dying. So I went to the hospital When I went into the critical care unit, they said to me, he hasn't moved or opened his eyes in three days, so we can't guarantee a response. So I walked in, and I walked up to the bed, and inadvertently I leaned on a button which moved something, and the nurse panicked, get away from the bed, get away from the bed. 
So I uh, rearranged myself and I reached down my hand. I took a hold of his hand. There must have been 15 literally machines going all connected in some way to both his arms and his mouth. And I just reached my hand out and I took his hand and I said, Hey, coach, it's Johnny Mack. That's what I was always known as by him. Johnny Mack. Hey, coach, it's Johnny Mack. Immediately, I felt this strength of his grip and he opened his eyes and he nodded his head. He couldn't talk because he had a trach. And I said, Coach, I'm here to tell you something. You're the thief on the cross. This is your time. You have no future. Now is the time for you to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Now is the time to confess your sin and embrace Christ, Coach. You're the thief on the cross. His response is, squeezing my hand with his right hand, and then he lifts up his other hand. It's got a board on it with needles, and he reaches over and takes my other hand. And he's squeezing me with both hands, and I said, Are you ready to pray and repent and embrace Jesus Christ? You know the gospel. You know he died on the cross, and I went over it. He knew it. His brother was a believer. He had intersected with believers for years. This is your time. Are you ready? He nodded his head. He nodded his head. And we prayed together, and he committed his life to Christ. Fifty years later, the age of 80, toward the end of this, his brother came in, who was a believer, and realized what was going on and fell down on coach and kissed him all over the head and hugged him, and then he kissed me all over the head and hugged me. <laughs> we, we had this incredible incredible moment and I wanted to know the story I, I wanted to know how, how it all happened why me and his brother basically said he watched your life for all these 50 years and I realized in that moment you want to live your life so that somebody you knew 50 years ago wants you to bring them the gospel 50 years later. We wept around that bed that day, and he was changed forever. I went back a few days later to see how he was doing, and he was up in a chair recovering and doing better couldn't talk. I walked in the room. He beamed and smiled, grabbed my hand, and started pushing me in a direction. And I went over and picked up a clipboard, same clipboard I saw 50 years ago on the side of a football field, aluminum. This was not the same one, but the same kind. And in it was an alphabet. And he had written the alphabet out in longhand. And he took his finger and he pointed out a message W H A T what C A N can I D O do F O R for O U R L O R D J E S U S. What can I do for our Lord Jesus? I said, Coach, he's doing fine. You don't need you don't need to do anything for him. 
this is his time for to do for him to do everything for you and he just beamed well his brother called me and said that no one can believe the transformation in his heart it's shocking now he wants to recover and get out of the hospital because he says i have to live my life a different way so his brother sent me another message from coach do you know of a good coaches bible study i want to be with christian coaches and i do and i'll help him with that when he gets out of the hospital well just to close the story out the other night i went to watch my grandson who plays football at heart high they were having a passing league and they were in summer passing league seven on seven against oaks christian which is a big football school and the coach there is bill riddell bill riddell is another legendary football coach great college coach played in the nfl he's been a coach for years he's in his mid-70s and i'm standing on the sideline watching my grandson play and across the field comes coach riddell and he sees my son matt and he asks him but is that matt MacArthur, john's son somebody says yeah and he says where's your dad and so matt got me and I walked over and Bill Riddell starts to weep. This is a crusty 75-year-old football coach. (laughs) And he's crying and he can't talk. And he says, it's the greatest transformation I've ever seen in my entire life. I prayed for him for 30 years. 30 years my wife and I prayed for his salvation. And he said to me, he said, probably you don't know the story. I said, I only know what I know, but I don't know all of it. He said, well, I'm the guy that called Coach's brother and said, there's one guy the coach wants to hear from, and it was you. So he initiated the whole thing. Well, that's far more thrilling to me because I have so much invested in my coach's life than it would be to you. But the point I want to make is how you live your life now and beyond now may not bear fruit for decades but your consistency may be the thing that makes the gospel believable in the life of someone long long into the future live your life so that 30 years from now 40 years from now 50 years from now when somebody is desperate for the gospel and they've watched your life they want you. What do you think? Is that powerful? That happened this year. That's this year. That is this year. Look in your notes. The most powerful thing about what you just heard, 50 years of living, but did you catch 30 years of praying? Am I following the Lord in living a changed life that lives the gospel, that lives the gospel? Am I living differently? The rich man did not. Number two, am I living a changed life that does the gospel? Am I loving differently? It's not just something inside, it's something that comes out. And then thirdly, am I living a changed life that shares the gospel? What you just heard and what you have in that parable is a combination of all three of those. 
Is it something I live? Is it something that I love? It's changed my loves. And is it something that I'm sharing? Is it something that I do? That's why you have this big old contrast between the rich man and the poor man. The point is the rich man, if he had been born again, would have lived differently. He would have loved differently and he would have shared a different message. And so, will you be surprised to be in hell? I want to assume nothing today. Make sure today that you're 100% sure that if you died today, you will not be surprised and land in hell. But you know beyond a shadow of the doubt that you have responded to Scripture, you have repented of your sins, you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're bearing the fruit of repentance and saving faith today, today can be your day. You can be the thief. You can be Lazarus today, whose name meant God helps me, God saves me. But let me end with this. Absolutely no one is saved, though God does it all, no one is saved apart from others praying and others preaching the gospel. Did you see it? It's that one-two punch of prayer and saving. You don't get saved apart from the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. But more and more people in our culture are being one to the community of believers before they're one to our Christ. That's why we have small groups that are meant to invite people. That's why we have VBS to invite people. That's why Saturday is so important. Hey, these guys can have fun. I want to be around them. So let me ask you three questions, and I've got to end. Who are you praying? Who are you praying for? Who will you pray for 30, 40, 50 years? Could you even just pray one week? Who are you showing the love of Christ to by being in community to them? Take your community to them. We've got a neighbor whose husband has left her, and we've got we to gotta bring the community and the fellowship to her. She's hurting all alone, single mother now. Who are you sharing the message of salvation with? It doesn't happen with a closed mouth. It doesn't happen apart from sharing the gospel. Let's do it. Father in heaven, thank you for the grace that saved me. Thank you for the people that prayed for me and people that loved me, but also people that confronted and shared with me the message. Oh, Father in heaven, help us to be those who take the gospel and help us to take it with a message of the scriptures about sin, about Savior, and about the salvation that changes lives in a radical way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Share the good news this week, folks. Share it.